Hello and welcome to another episode of Oconus the Contractor's Life, an unscripted free flow discussion of the experiences of private security contractors from the perspective of private security contractors. From Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest for this episode is Larry Wilson. Without further ado, Larry, welcome to the show. Hey, Scott. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, brother. It's a pleasure to have you here, and it's a heck of a feat of magic that we finally made it happen. Without going into detail, unless you want to divulge it, you, I'll just say that you are on the other side of the planet. We're doing this via Skype. <laughs> so Correct. thank you very much for, for, for making yourself available. Um, with that said, for the folks that are listening, Larry, uh, why don't you, before we uh, start getting into things, why don't you tell everybody who you are, uh, what you've done or what what you did that led you to what you're doing now when you started contracting? Sure. Um, my name is Larry Wilson. Um, I am a former Marine, um, Desert Storm veteran. Um, eight years in the Marine Corps, honorably discharged. Uh, after that, um, I began a career in law enforcement and that Spanned for approximately 12 years, finished as an undercover narcotic agent. Um, 2007, I began the contractor's life uh, and did tours in Iraq for several different tours, Afghanistan, Central Africa, Mogadishu. Um, Mogadishu is where I actually met my wife. I was on her security detail as her AIC, agent in charge. Um actually got hurt, which pretty much retired me from the business. Uh, and nothing crazy, nothing exciting or sexy. It was CrossFit. CrossFit is what took my knee. Mm. And <laughs> um, my wife, uh, back then girlfriend, asked me to marry her. And then we transferred. And uh, I'm riding the coattails of a foreign service officer. Uh, my wife works for USAID. And I am uh, her spouse. And we are in Amman, Jordan, presently. Wow. <laughs> that's quite a that's quite a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Big nutshell. That, yeah, that's a that's a great ride you you've been on. Um before we uh start uh going into it, or I'm assuming for people that are listening, um do you think that everything you did prior to becoming a contractor um helped you as a contractor? Or were they two totally separate things? One had nothing to do with the other. Uh, that's a good point, Scott, because um, I think kind of like when you pick your branch of service, you know, um, some are called to a certain thing. And, and, and let's be more generalized and broaden it, uh, not just the service, but like some people do things for different reasons, obviously. Um, I truly believe my path was the way I was supposed to go. So I never had one of those like, well, I guess because there's nothing else, I'll do this. No, I, I chose every career path, um, open-minded, open-eyed, excited. Um, and I take uh, the advice my grandfather gave me, who, by the way, not even arguably, but to me, without a doubt, smartest man I ever knew in my life. Um, and he, he told me some pretty simple things, but 
they stuck with me when I heard them as a child and they reemerged when certain milestones were, you know, accomplished in my life. And then those little ditties or sayings or pieces of advice, those little nuggets he would throw out would ring so loud in my ear. So one of them in particular, he's like, and he'd be nonchalant, you know, we might be fishing, you know, building something or he's building something I'm getting in his way. Um, <laughs> he would say, you know, he goes, you got to find something you like and see if they'll pay you to do it. And then he'd go back to doing whatever he was doing. And that stuck, that stuck with me. So, you know, it wasn't a mistake. I went to the Marine Corps recruiter, you know, I passed the Army, Navy and the Air Force and went straight to the Marine Corps um, because I wanted to be a Marine. I was not confused about what the branches offered. Um, Love the Marine Corps. Um, But I also wanted to be a police officer. So I kind of made the decision to do eight. So I had a little ditty of my own and a little little piece of advice I would tell myself. uh, If you do 10, you got to stay in. So thank Mm -hmm. God we did four-year tours. So I did eight years. I wanted to be young enough to be a police officer. So I transitioned and did that. Um, and, you know, the, the path I took was that of protector, helper, you know, things like that. And then I finally hit the pinnacle or, or what I thought was the pinnacle of police work. My last three years, I was an undercover narcotic agent in the Atlanta area. Um, so that goes without saying that was pretty high speed, you know, at the end of the day. So problem with that was in order to give everyone in the department a chance to experience that career path, there was a time limit on it. You know, it's like most special operations units, there's a time limit. So everybody else can get a chance. So I thought to myself, man, after, after undercover narcotics, going back to patrol, even with rank or promotion is not going to suffice. And of course it, it, it really didn't. So I'm not an adrenaline junkie, but you know, I'm not into humdrum either. So um, that's when I decided to throw my hat into the ring for contracting. And that was 2007. And two years ago is when I actually got hurt. Um, so it was a long run and you know how it is in our business. Um, it's not what you know, it's who knows you. You know, the old saying was like, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But there's a third piece. It's who knows you, because mm-hmm. there's there's very few of us that go past 10 years in our business for right. whatever reason. Um, so small community, super finite. So when your name gets out there, people start asking you. You get called by recruiters. Even when you're home on leave with a job, people are calling you. That's a good thing, you know, in our line of work. That means you're not messed up. That means you have something you can offer. Um, so that led me to my last contract, which was in Mogadishu and a small task order, but, uh, very fruitful. And again, you know, I met my wife, you know, on that task. So priceless to me, even though I got hurt, it was worth it. I'd lose the other knee. Um, (laughs) you know, if if it turned out the same way again, but, uh, yeah, CrossFit, man, stay away from it. (laughs) I've, I've I've tried CrossFit and I, and I and I'll say on the one hand you're right it it it, it um you got to be physically fit that or just um be a glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah, and the, the crazy thing about the Moog task order, you know, without divulging too much in there, but one thing you had to be a PT stud, man. Like, you know, with a lot of whips contracts, 
worldwide protective service stuff, you know, you did a PT test once a year. Sometimes you had a task order that did twice a year. But in Moog, we weapons qualled and did PT test quarterly to stay on that task order. Huh. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, I've been on DOD contracts where that was the same thing. Or, sure. you know, uh, but it is interesting. Um, now, WPS... Uh, is what it's known now, WPS, uh, since, right. um, what was it, like 2011 or 12, something like that. Right. Um, but, and, and maybe it's maybe it's task order dependent. Uh, sure. But yeah, I know that's that. Right. Back, back in our day when we started, it was WPPS and then WPPS2. Right. And with the WPS, now it's actually WPPS2. And I think they're about to do W, actually it's WPS2. Whips two, and I think they're about to do a, a, a Whips three iteration coming up soon. Right, that wouldn't surprise me. I, I know I've heard that, um, but yeah, I mean, there. So, and so it may have been task order dependent, and you would know that better than I would since I've been out of it for a number of years. But um, there were at some some contracts, uh, and guys I talked to when they go home on leave after their 105 days. Um, give or take, depending on the uh, political climate and what's going on, uh, it could be considerably longer. But uh, but they're saying that they and and as I recall, I think on the task order I was on, there was every when we went home, you had to do a, a, a three or five day refresher before you went back over. Oh uh, yeah. So um, anyway, um, so your experiences as a contractor, so you got out of the military, you went to law enforcement. And then you became a contractor. Your first contract, 2007. So can you tell people where you were, what you were doing on that? Yeah, sure. Um, first company I ever worked for was DynCorp. Um, mm. And I actually grabbed a contract as a police advisor. So, yeah, as a mentor. I wasn't even in the protection you know, side of it at that point. Um, first place I ever went to was Wasset which was south of Baghdad, maybe about an hour drive. Um, landed on a FOB, met a bunch of other former police officers, and we were tasked to train the uh, Iraqi police. And it wound up being one of those situations where I immediately understood the importance of that because that led to the accelerated process of removing us from that country. You know, as long as you could get those guys spun up so they could handle their own security. So um, the program that we started that actually plugged into and pretty much inherited and ran with a little bit more was called the D-Start program. It was for Delta, FOB Delta, uh, sustained training. Um, I can't remember exactly what the acronym was, but basically we were bringing in IP, the Iraqi police, into the FOB, you know, with all the access clearances and things like that, putting them in a classroom and basically uh, giving them refresher training because what we found out was um, after their initial hire and then initial basic training, a lot of those uh, officers didn't have any type of sustainment or refresher training. So you'd, you'd have a IP uh, 10 years down the road, nothing new in his toolbox. Hmm. Um, a lot of them didn't know how to drive, so we put on a driving course, um, and we actually 
got the blessing from the general in charge of the Wasset police, who basically was in charge of 10,000 officers. Um, he made sure we had a minimum of 20 students every two weeks um, huh. to train and then go back out. So what we came up with was that we needed a cadre, an Iraqi cadre. So we needed an officer and some NCOs who could read and write, um, not, not English too, just, just read and write Arabic. Um, and we put them through a train, the trainer course. Um, and then they actually taught the course. It was so successful that um, I got blessed off to actually mimic that training in two other districts in Iraq. And mm. it was, it was, it was pretty fruitful. So, you know, you go to a police station and one of the things that I think we as Americans, you know, are bleeding hearts, we want to help. We want to help, but we forget crucial elements about the help. We think we know what's best for others instead of asking what they need. So mm. I learned that a long time ago and very early uh, because a lot of times um, I'd go to the same police stations and meet with the same people, but I'd also have brand new U.S. military counterparts. So I was the only thing that was uh, that I, I was the only continuity. Mm. So um, I would try to explain to my military counterparts, you know, everybody's got their numbers they got to worry about. But I'm like, hey, let's ask them what they need, because, you know, certain police stations did different things and didn't need what we were offering. You know, like mm. the biggest things that a lot of these stations wanted was diesel fuel. You know, mm. simple. They just want to run their lights and be an effective <laughs> police unit. You know, a traffic unit didn't do what the investigation guys did. So, um, so yeah, it was one of those things. Um, asking them what they needed and having them tell us actually made it seem like we cared a little bit more as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was very fruitful, man. There's very few things in life that you do and call work hmm. you're actually so that, your pays off and you see it pay off right so that was a tall order but you completed it successfully and you saw the fruits the rewards of, of what you did correct yes um i tell you what when i started contracting i i said i'm only going to do one year we know how that works out um <laughs> that, that particular program i extended um into two years um and then left that one came back to my department um when my oldest son went to high school man i went back right out again and this time i went to afghanistan with dying core again and also in the mentoring role um so mentoring the afghan police doing the same thing mm. um this time taking a more direct role and helping them police certain provinces you know and their criminal happened to be Taliban, you know, so I kind of liken it to if you're in as, as a police officer in the United States, um, our Taliban and Al Qaeda is MS-13. It's mm. gangs, you know, same thing. American gangs are terrorists. Mm. So as a police officer, I've dealt I've been on a gang crew, you know, before. So I was now in Afghanistan, trying to teach the Afghan police how to do their policing um, and go after, you know, the criminals of the area. And mm. shortly after my arrival, 
One of the, the best techniques as a police officer is the good old knock and talk. Mm. And a, a knock and talk, it seems like you'd, you'd never get anything out of it, but man, they're so valuable. It, it, it's exactly what it sounds like. You knock on the door after all other avenues and, and techniques of investigating have stalled. And you either, you're either going to clear this complaint or you're going to find evidence of a crime and proceed accordingly. So you knock on the door of a residence, if it's a residence, um, you identify yourself as the police <laughs> and you ask if there's any illegal activity taking place. And when that door opens, you use your senses, you look, you listen, you smell. And obviously whatever you see or smell and sometimes hear based on some type of utterance, those are elements to a crime. So mm -hmm. I say that to say this, I've cleared out many cases as a narcotic agent on knock and talks. So mm -hmm. I taught the Afghan police how to do knock and talks. And one of those knock and talks yielded 40 pounds of hash that were being hidden in a spider hole in a compound in Afghanistan. And we got two arrests out of that. Wow. <laughs> and the proceeds, the proceeds from those hash sales were buying munitions that were using mortars to attack my combat outpost at least twice a day. Wow. So that's interesting. So you hearken on a couple of things that are some interesting parallels. Um, <clears throat> one, the, the, the democratization charge that we were on for some time, you know, where it seemed like for a time, everybody or a lot of people were calling for democracy around the world. And yep. of course, as time goes on and as people like us realize, it may not be a popular statement, but, you know, it's like not everybody wants democracy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, some of these cultures and societies have been around for thousands of years. And in right. spite of whatever goes on there, that's that's the form of government that they Call it whatever you want, but that's what they want. That's what they like. Yeah. Um, but so the, the gang terrorist um, parallel, um, I've never heard it put that way before. Um, maybe we can expound on it a little bit more. But you're saying that there is that these criminal networks, MS-13 and the others here in the States and, and other places, not just in the United States. Right. Al-Qaeda. um Taliban, they're similar in the way that they're structured, organized, and the way that they do things. I, I totally believe that at the basic level, because all mentioned entities use fear tactics to get what they want. Um, and what they want is control and to do things their way. Hmm. Um, you can label it whatever you want. I mean, if I if I if I put lipstick on a pig, it's still a pig, right? Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but I yep. think, you know, I think it goes back to human nature. You know, wanting to dehumanize things. But you know, there's that wave that people domestically don't want to hear certain verbiage, but if it has to deal with failed or successful foreign policy hell if it's outside the continent of the united states man it's just evil it's easier to say it's it's a terrorist organization isis mm. al-qaeda you know um taliban it's like ah you know those are the evil ones but yeah you know um 
biker gangs, the Mongols, Hell's Angels, um, organized crime. I mean, if mm. if if you terrorize the population, you are a terrorist, you know. Um, right. <laughs> and the nexus to most, not all, but most is is narcotics. Narcotics drives the train mm. in a lot of. So even as a patrolman, I understood that the war I was fighting started way outside of my borders. Mm. So when we did that hash bust, I found out that it took two months to make a kilo of hash. And they did this by growing the marijuana plant to maturity. Um, And then when the marijuana plant grows, it, it, it secretes a, a residue, a resin. It's kind of like molassesy, um, not as dark brown, but the same type of viscosity. The farmer will actually take his bare hands and he rubs his hands back and forth, like he's trying to warm them, if you know what I mean, mm. on the stalk, and the resin transfers to his hands, and then he takes the resin and he removes it from his hands, and he collects enough to where he processes it into the nice dried powdery brick form, which is known as hash. So Mm. it starts, you know, usually in places that are not in the U S you know, sometimes there are, you know, grows that are in the U S but took two months to do that. So that's some dedication, you know what I mean? But at the same time, that stuff would find its way from Afghanistan into Europe, from Europe to the United States. Mm. So, you know, I was kind of like, I felt like I could probably do a lot more at the source. And that's why I was glad I was on that task order in Afghanistan. And then to spread that knowledge that I'd learned um, and then see it actually happen. Because let me tell you, when you tell somebody you can just go knock on the door and ask if they got drugs, they look at you like you have three heads. (laughs) And then when it happened, they looked at me like I was a genius. Hmm. Wow. Again, uh, it, it, it stopped us from getting IDF'd. Right. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, IDF. I, I, I mean, people that listen to this probably have heard IDF, uh, but indirect there may fire. be. A, can you yeah, can, say that again for everybody? Uh, IDF is indirect fire. Gotcha. Right. And, and by indirect fire, we mean what? Mortars and or other artillery pieces. OK. Yeah. Um. So, so as a police, from a, from a police perspective and maybe it's other perspectives, but, um, the argument that's been made, um, for a number of years, I haven't heard it lately, although I'm sure it's still out there, uh, is that in a number of countries, and since we're talking about the Middle East now or the MENA region, uh, you know, they say that, you know, that these crops are all that these families and farmers have so there has to be some political policy that allows them to cultivate this because there's nothing else for them to earn otherwise they can't earn a living and they're going to become a terrorist from your perspective uh in your experiences how do you how do you uh how do you answer that yeah, that, that's a tough one because I, I, I know people who were on those programs um, and I kind of believe that, you know, if so, again, you, you touched on it earlier about 
democracy and what that means. So I still believe it's an ideal, it's, it's an experiment. The countries in which we deal with, we, we seem to forget as a collective, and I mean not the average citizen, maybe the governments that run the show in the West, uh, and dare I say, even the United States. We're young, we're young in the world. These people go back before the Bible. They go back before the Quran. They've been doing things a certain way. You can't change in 10 years, 20 years, hell, even 100 years, what's been going on for millennia. You can't, you can't do it. Um, so it goes back again to if this farmer, for generations, his farm's been producing a narcotic, the poppy. You go in there and burn his field. It's kind of like it's kind of like when you talk about you know coffee makers. You know everybody's talking about oh the, co- the the people that grow the coffee do not get paid enough for how much coffee generates you know billions of dollars globally annually. But the coffee farmer he gets pennies if that on the dollar. So mm-hmm. relate that to a poppy farmer. His fields have grown poppies for generations. Now you come in, you burn his fields. What is he going to do to feed his family? So there's that knee jerk. Again, it's one of those things. Yeah, I mean, it may be wrong, but what's your alternative? Far too long has someone been you know, told that they've been doing something wrong, but nobody has the alternative or the replacement or the fix to follow any of that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, as a parent, if I'm telling my kid, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, but I don't tell them why they're wrong. Maybe you can do it this way. I'm a crappy parent. You know, I've, I've left my kid open-ended. I've left, I left, I've left them with nothing. I haven't taught them anything. So mm. I, I believe, um, how did we do it with big tobacco? Nobody's growing tobacco anymore because tobacco is the big no-no in our country, right? What Tobacco is harmful to soil. So what did we do with those farmers? How, do, how are they making their living now? There's got to be a switch, right? Mm. Um, there's some fertile land over there because they're growing stuff. So I've walked through many and near many spring onion fields. They got spring onions. Mm. But like our farmers get subsidies when things aren't going well. I don't think the Afghan government, and this is probably because of corruption, you know, you funnel money in, but that money doesn't get, there's no trickle down. Mm. So there may have been programs to help farmers, but the farmers didn't get the money. You know, they didn't get the equipment. They didn't get new seed. They didn't get new fields. So Mm. um, I can't, I can't be mad at them. You know what I mean? I mean, they got to do what they got to do as a parent. I'm going to do what I'm going to do to feed my kid. Right. It, it just, it just, it just puts things, it puts things into perspective. And I kid you not, you know, as well as I do, you can armchair quarterback something to death, man. But unless your boots on the ground mm-hmm. and you see it sitting behind a desk, talking about it, you don't get the perspective of being there. You know what I mean? And, and I seeing the, the human element. And at the end of the day, man, I'd like to think we're all humans. There's bad humans. There's good humans that do bad things, you know. Um, but yeah, that that's a hard one, man. And I'm telling you, <laughs> I 
I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, for all you know, I could have been training I, you know, Afghan cops in the daytime. They could have been Taliban at night. But guess what? They showed up to work every day, you know, right. and they were fighting crime. So. <laughs> well, you know, yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of us, uh, some people, I'll just say some people lead double lives. So <laughs> we can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, now, DynCor um, is involved in a lot of uh, different stuff, but uh, I think most people probably know them for their police-type stuff that they do overseas, whether it's mentoring or training and stuff like that. Um, your your time with, with DynCor, I mean, I've heard good stuff from people that have worked for DynCor. What, from your perspective, your experience, I mean, up, down, neutral? Oh, man. That, it was a great company. It was a great company. Okay. I mean, they are a great company. The contracts were great. Um, tons of support. Hmm. Uh, they tried to take care of their people as best they could. I mean, yeah, it was, yeah. Like, you, right. you didn't feel like a number. I didn't feel like a number, you know. Hmm. Um, and I, I have no doubt that the two and a half, three years I spent with Dynacor before I actually got into WIPs um, probably helped me get into WIPs for sure. Because it gave me the overseas experience. Because you know, back in back in the early days, man, it, it was hard to get in. It you was know, uh, standard was a little bit high, um, you know, and and it, it's it's unique that you know in the early days I didn't know anybody and nobody knew me. So just to get in based on your resume and all your your vetted sources and you know. Uh, DD24, like that, that says a lot. That's like one of the last things that I'm familiar with that um, I got in on my merit, you know? Mm. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that, that was a good thing, you know? It's like, wow, okay, cool. But now, you know, many years down the road, like 12. So yeah, that I'm only going to do it one year turned into 12. <laughs> and, um, Again, you know, your, your, your body of work speaks for itself. Either way, if you're a crappy operator, you're not long for the business, and they tell stories about you at the schoolhouse. <laughs> if, if you do your job and you're reliable, you get promoted, you get all the bios approved, and people from other companies that you may have worked with years ago remember you and call you up. Because that's what happened when I actually went to um, – uh, so, yeah, after uh, DynCorp, I got picked up with Global Integrated Securities for my first WIPS contract, and that's that was back in Iraq in Basra. Oh, yeah, I remember them. GIS. Yeah. Uh, a lot of guys I know worked for them. Yep. Yep. So uh, since we went there, um, I was going to ask you, and that was a nice transition, after DynCorp, where did you go? What did you do? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so yeah, like, uh, after dying core, I came home for a little bit, um, put some more feelers out there, you know, applied for a couple more spots, uh, saw that global was pretty much a startup, which is great. You know how it is when, a, when, if you can catch a company on a startup, you're probably going to get hired. Um, yeah. I think they just gotten awarded their first task order. So it was in Basra, Iraq. Uh, way south, um, mm -hmm. close to the Kuwaiti border, about an hour or 15 minutes, hour and a half. Um, 
So I get hired by Global. I go to the schoolhouse for seven weeks, do all my vetting, get all spun up, and then deploy to Iraq. And basically, we stand that task order up from nothing. So mm. shortly after getting there, we're doing some training. Um, our charge has got to present her credentials. So now we're starting to do moves. And um, I'm glad I had um, some of the old guys that were in supervisory positions take us under their wing. But uh, shortly after, I went from licking a window on my first mission to basically uh, becoming the tactical commander and navigating um, mm. until I picked up shift lead. So I actually picked up shift lead um, and was running a team um, before it was all said and done. So 2011 to, to 2014 is this time frame. Um, and actually became the chief of mission shift lead. So I was the mm. shift lead for the charge. Wow. Yep. That, and, that's um, uh, that says a lot for for people that don't understand or that are listening. Uh, maybe you can articulate the significance behind that. Well, um, I I, I kind of know that uh, it, it was a lot of responsibility. Um, so chief of mission um, is the top diplomat in that area at the time. So it's either um, an ambassador or a charge. So because we weren't in Baghdad, we were at a consul general. So it could also be a CG, a consul general. Um, so Baghdad had the embassy. So Baghdad had the um, the ambassador. So Basra was, Basra and Erbil at that time had consul generals or consulates. Um, and we'd have a CG or we'd have a charge. Um, so basically, you got to work your way up through the ranks. And w licking a window is one of our little terms of endearment <laughs> for being just a, uh, a standard operator who is a, a PSS, which is a, a personal security specialist. So you're a team member. And a tactical commander or TC sits in the right seat of the lead vehicle in a motorcade and navigates the whole motorcade to and from venues. So big responsibility. There's usually no extra pay, a lot of extra stress. Um, and you answer to the shift leader and the team answers to you and you're responsible for training um, and just basically uh, backing up what the shift leader puts out. Mm. So when you become a shift leader, you've really cut your teeth. And I know individuals that have worked years, years and years and years and um, have not become shift leaders. And you've got to take a supervisory course. So 18 months into that task order, um, I took a remote supervisor course. They gave you two weeks to complete the course. I did it in one full day. So it was a 40 mm. half hour course. I did it in nine hours. Wow. <laughs> um, I just I just locked myself in my room and completed everything. And there were writing samples, essays, mm. written, written exam. Um, so once that was complete, I still had to wait the two week deadline though before I got my grade. Um, <laughs> but once I did that, it's because we had visa issues. You know how that works. Mm -hmm. um, they were afraid to let us go because we might not have gotten back. So we mm. extended. But as soon as my grades came back, um, my bio was approved by the State Department to run a team. And that's how that started. And then once you become a chief of mission team, that's when the blazers and the suits came out. 
<laughs> yeah, seen those. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of guys have, they're okay with it. A lot of guys are like, nah, man, I want to go back to the beards and the 511s. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Hair, haircuts and shaved on the yeah. Chief of Michigan team. Yeah, yeah. Um, so now Global, um, I don't, I think I've heard that they are no longer around. Can you attest? Are they still in the game? As far as I know, they are not. So in 2014, um, while on mission, I tore my bicep 90% off of the bone. So that sent, that sent me out um, shortly thereafter. But before um, Global went belly up, so to speak, uh, they lost the task order and it went to triple canopy. Okay. Yeah, and those those are some of the things I've heard. Um, right. I've heard it told different ways, but you know, and, and you put it pretty pretty well. And if you weren't there, if you didn't actually see it, hear it, witness it, you're just giving second and third hand news, and that's an awful lot of what I got. Second and third hand right. news. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So now, how did? Um, so I mean, they're obviously different missions, different. Uh, structure different every everything so how did those two what you did when you started out with global versus what you did with DynCore for the people that are listening can you articulate um, you know wh- what were the practical differences whether it was lifestyle or tempo or anything sure um, so the first two contracts when I was with DynCore it was strictly on the mentoring and training side um, Again, DynCorp, as far as life support, they spared no expenses. So inside of a forward operating base, FOB, the FOB was huge. But inside that FOB, we had our own camp. And our camp had the same amenities that a FOB would carry. You know, the MWR, um, you know, the morale welfare, um, you know, types uh, setups. We had laundry. We had our own gym. You could go to the the main gym. I mean, but we stayed in camp. You know, we had individual housing. Our 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 uh, container housing units. Our shoes were, you know, no roommate. They were wet shoes, which meant they had you know bathrooms in them. Um, so DynCorp took care of you that way, as far as your creature comforts. Um, mm. Global. So after the training, getting into the actual protection side, total different, total different animal. So the only people I was training at that point were team members who, Mm. by the way, as well as you know, not sure if the listeners know uh, the background, but uh, you've got a lot of operators from all the special military groups. You know, my teams were comprised of uh, PJs from the Air Force, uh, special forces guys, Rangers, SEALs, Marine Raiders. I mean, we had the gamut. That's what we needed. Um, so when we weren't doing missions, we were training when we weren't training, training, we were PTing when we weren't PTing, we were on the range. So, I mean, there's always something Mm. to do. Vehicles are taken care of. Um, you know, back in the day of the big armored suburban, you know, Bosra could accommodate those vehicles on their roads. Um, you are a personal security detail for a U.S. diplomat. You are their 
living, moving body armor. You know, you get them mm. to and from venues with IED threats, um, small arms, complex attack threats, whatever you, whatever's out there, you're there to make sure that nothing happens to them so they can do their job. So we did our job so they could do their job. And totally different, you know, um, the training aspect was totally removed, like I said, from uh, we didn't have much interaction um, with host nation um, unless they were escorting us based on some new policy, if it came up or not. But um, our job mm. was totally different from the mentor, you know, uh, part that I had started out with, with uh, DynCore for sure. Okay. So um, you touched on a few things. I mean, the, uh, the professionalism of the, uh, and I use this in quotes, average <laughs> fellow due to do that that was in there on these uh, parts of the, you know, they were part of the team, uh, right. the professionalism. And, and that went everything from not only the demeanor, um, but their dedication to that lifestyle, including the physical fitness stuff, um, all the way down to the training instruction. I mean, just you guys, I mean, uh, you mentioned a couple of injuries you took just yeah just to stay with the program, just to make sure that you could do your job when and if called upon. I mean, right. it's, yeah. Um, you know, and it takes a toll on you after a time, does it not? Oh man, it does. It does indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, I mean, you know, as an athlete, you know, and it, it's arguable, but I, I totally agree with it. And I actually have had some of my physicians, you know, give us props um, and talk about how certain things you do in the military you know, make you an athlete because there, there are a lot of athletic things that, you know, that you, uh, you know, undergo, but as an athlete, I played football my whole life. I mean, I got banged up in football, but man, I mean, I've, I've torn my Achilles twice, mm. got a partial knee replacement now, two surgeries in one year on the knee, mm. repaired bicep, you know? So yeah, it, it, it will tear you a new one, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I, I will say, you know, during my time, I, I mean, argue, I like to say that, you know, during the course of my life, I've had I've always been fit, but I've had periods of time where it's like, oh, wow. Uh, and I think one of the most remarkable was my fitness level Yeah. W with the WPS program. It's like, holy crud. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, it, it, it all those things taught us or re taught us what we probably already knew and had inside of us anyway, which was that, um, uh, you know, I might be really tired after that hour or two or three hours, I take a short break and it's like, Oh, let's do it again. I mean, but you, you get, right. so you got the, you got the mentality, you got the, the inner makings. I mean, you either you have it or you don't, and it just gets drawn out when you're around those kinds of people and you get in those programs and you really learn to enjoy it, and it becomes yeah. a part of a become part of you, part of your life, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I totally um, thought it was an extension of the military for sure. Um, man, you know the, the the brotherhood, and yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we, you know, people that haven't been a part of that, you know, boo hoo it and poo poo it, and and have all kinds of negative stuff about it, and. You know, well, why this and why that? That's not fair. This isn't fair. And it's like, well, first, fair has got nothing to do with it. And second, if you've ever been there, 
Okay, you'll quickly understand why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, and the funny thing is, like, like I said in the beginning of this, man, we're all drawn to do certain things. Like, it's not for everybody, and that's okay. You know, that's the funny part. It's like there. You've probably heard it a lot too. You know, um, I, another one of Granddad's sayings is like, he's like, "Don't talk about it, be about it." So mm. when people have told me, "Well, I was going to be." in the service but i'm like okay mm. that's awesome but it's almost like it's like it's like they're they're projecting something that upset them that they feel that they have to try to right that. I was gonna do got... that, I did, yeah right <laughs> like the excuses i'm like hey it's okay that you didn't but right you know, there was a difference like i told my mother i enlisted i didn't say hey i'm going to enlist no i let her know after just like my son did to me, you know, <laughs> my son, he's like, Hey, I enlisted in the army. I was like, okay. All right. Nice. You know, you gotta, you gotta be about it. Right. Well, yeah, it's, um, and, and you touched upon something important and I've tried to convey this to people that it's like, you know, it's okay that you, you know, that you didn't, that would have, could have, should have thing. It's okay that you didn't. Don't beat yourself up about it. You know, if you right. can still do it, go do it. If that's something you really want to do. But, you know, because a team takes all kinds of people to make it work. And right. and we sometimes forget to mention them. But, you know, the, the, the toilet cleaners, the cooks, the chefs, the, you know, just, you know, the people that, that uh, bring us our, our supplies. I mean, it, it our communications people. I mean, it takes a lot of people to make this thing work. We just are the ones that everybody talks about. You know, because right. we're the ones that they see. But uh, so, yeah, I, I got no problems with with anyway. Um, so when you finished up with Global, you then went where and did what? So after Global, came home for about two years to heal the arm um, and pretty much thought that the career was over because it was my shooting, my shooting arm. Mm. It, it took two years to recover with that thing. Had wow. nerve damage for a while. Um, uh, everybody was like, oh, that's it. Your career's over and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, yeah. So <laughs> what, do you, what do you do when you're in disability? You start a business. Okay. So I started my business in <laughs> 2014. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, go ahead and put in a plug for it. Tell them, tell them what it is. Oh, yeah. So um, the name of the company is MVX Security Solutions. And MVX, I'm kind of playing with the acronym a little bit. It stands for Mindset, Vision, and Experience. So mm. basically, you know, um, I offer um, quality firearms training um, based out of Florida. Um, trying to keep, you know, in the same realm of what I've been doing for the government for the last 30 years. Um you know, protection, training, um, domestically and or, you know, uh, internationally to, you know, um, U.S. government complying, you know, rules towards friendly nations and things like that. So, you know, pretty much what I've been doing my whole career, as, as said before, so I'm, I'm also an NRA instructor, so I, I believe in the proper... Uh, education of a firearm if someone chooses to have one i don't advocate the sale nor 
promote the purchase, but if you own one, I feel it's my responsibility to try to share my knowledge on how to maintain safety with it um, Mm. and show its respect. I also uh, conduct risk and threat assessments for uh, commercial and residential um, locations. Um, Yeah, so, you know, trying trying to... Trying to keep things paid for, you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> You're burning the candle at both ends. <laughs> you know, it's it's one of those things, man. When you, when you find your hustle, it's not really work, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. My dad used to say something about, like, you know, he had a lot of stuff similar to what you mentioned your dad would say. And yeah. um, a, a good father good father is, is something you, you, can't, uh, you can't say enough good things about. Um, so, no, so where you're at now, what you're doing now, um, can you talk about that? Can you tell people about it at all? Well, um, so now again, I'm still, you know, healing up. Um, I'm here with the wife every once in a while I'll, I'll, I'll consult, you know, and things like that. Um, but waiting on this knee, man, like (laughs) a year ago I had the uh, last surgery, which, uh, Put some titanium down in the knee, wow. um, and and it was enough that they actually gave me a card to present at the airport in case I set the metal detector off. Oh so, wow! Yeah. So yeah, wow. that's that's pretty interesting. Okay. But um, so yeah, um, okay. I started school again, um, and working on a piece of paper in Homeland Security, um, hmm. and actually trying to parlay some of the work professional and life experience into college credits, which I've done quite, quite well so far. And I hope to continue for a few more credits. But, um, other than that, um, I'm trying to revamp the business, uh, and once again, um, get my, my app that I've created, um, for the business, uh, make sure I, uh, I am in compliance with Google. Google Play and mm. the iTunes store so my my app can once again be in those stores available for free download. Mm. Wow. Um kind of got your hands full. You know you you know uh if people haven't picked it up already. Um I mean you sound like a uh, uh what's the word I'm looking for? A very focused individual. You know what you <laughs> want or you figure out sure. once you figured it out and you know what you want you put your head down and go get it. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, so would you so would you say that everything you've done has lined up to put you where you're at now? And uh, in spite of the physical injuries you've taken, um, you know, through your career, um, which it sounds like you're doing a pretty good job of taking care of those. Um, but you, you know, you're not making excuses. You're not laying down and go, do, using the crutch or the wheelchair. Um, right. You're still getting out there and making things happen. But would you say that uh, you're exactly where you should or want to be? You know, yeah. Actually, I've I've got no regrets. Um, I'm happy with. First of all, I'm happy with me, which makes a big difference mm. with everything else. Um, I I don't have any. I don't have those conversations with myself, the what ifs or mm. shoulda couldas. Um, I'm 
self-perspective and self-awareness also plays a part in that. So I'm not fooling anybody. Yeah, we're getting older, you know, those, <laughs> who, can't, those who can't do teach, right? So, yeah, you know, I'm <laughs> – I now I'm at that stage where I'm, I'm I, I got to pass the knowledge, you know, um, and and I'm fine with that. Totally fine with that. Sitting back and, um, mm. you know, taking on the admin role or the mentoring role for anybody else. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm where I need to be, man. You know, um, people sometimes ask me, um, you know, between. High school in the Marine Corps, being recruited by schools. Are you sad you never went to those Division One schools to play football? No, I'm not because mm. there was a break where I actually played football, you know, um, in Europe for a little bit. Um, so I still played football at a at a higher level than high school. Mm. Um, uh, the path that I took has given me so many things. It's given me my children. It's given me my my wife, you know. I mean, so no. How how can I be sad about the path I took? It wasn't <laughs> if if I'd <laughs> taken that other path, things would be totally. We we might not be talking right now. Right. Well, no, and that and and you know that's great to hear, you know. But I ask that because you know sometimes maybe more than sometimes, yeah. And maybe it's the people that that never get outside their their shell, that never get outside their comfort level, and never go anywhere and and you know challenge themselves or risk they maybe they're the ones that are saying geez you know if i had it to do again i'd do it this way or i'd do it that way or you know they got the regrets but uh you know um and some guys still do some don't but you know i mean it's nice to hear a guy like you that doesn't have regrets you're still moving forward and you're moving onward and upward and uh from everything I can tell from our conversations, uh, you're doing quite well for yourself. And that's, that's a good thing, man. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, you know, now let me ask you, you know, some guys go through it and some don't, um, did you ever have your, your dark moments, um, when you're home on leave, you know, did you ever have those tough emotional mental trial periods that you went through? Yeah, of course. Of course. I think we all, I think anybody has those moments, man. You know, um, mine seemed to spring up when I was injured, when there was a big question mark whether or not I could actually do what I loved for a living anymore. And when you, you know, I, don't, I think it's hard to, to grasp unless you've actually been through it, but working on a contract is not guaranteed. So, automatically the pressure is there. Um, So it's like you don't have one of those secure jobs that's, you know, protected, you know, like some jobs are, you know, it takes a lot to get fired in, in, in a, in a lot of different genres, private sector, government. But when you're a contractor, man, you, you look at somebody (laughs) the wrong way, you're going home. You know how that is. Yeah. We might've signed up for a year or six months, but (laughs) Every day is yeah. a new day, right? <laughs> exactly. So okay. when you when you factor in an injury that could potentially take you out of the game, and you're like, um, what am I gonna do? Right. So you know you, you get your little moments of anxiety there, but you know some of the some of the times besides that, I think Afghanistan was probably probably my one of my roughest deployments because that 
that was that was it was rough. That was rough. Mm. So I was glad to be home. Um, but at the same time, you know, I I built in certain outlets early on. So I think it was a blessing that I started contracting at 37 because mm. I had enough time out of the military and working as a police officer and dealing with citizens and living in the community. So I had a, some time to decompress, you know, from uh, military life and things like that. Even mm. though police work was no walk in the park either, especially, you know, policing in the metro Atlanta area. Um, but, you know, I had that break. Um, but, yeah, Afghanistan was pretty rough. And But, again, having those built-in uh, safeguards so I didn't freaking jump off the ledge was mm. crucial. Family, um, I'd learned a long time ago that keeping that crap in was not good, not healthy. Um, most individuals who probably struggle feel like nobody understands and you know that may be true but if you find someone who loves you notice i said who loves you we we can love but we know who loves us too they may not understand what we've gone through but they've shown the empathy and have been willing to listen and let me tell you you know as well as i do man if you're listening to me, that's more therapeutic than not. Mm. And that's that's pretty much what can talk you off the ledge. You know what I mean? I do. Uh, you know, and and I've talked about that with other guys. Um, and that was huge for me, too. I mean, so I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, if it wasn't for the dogged persistence, the, was it, the endless patience that my wife had. <laughs> we've yeah. been done a hundred times over man <laughs> yeah, yeah right? i totally understand yep uh so you're right it, it take it does take that um for you know we call it the we, we might have been a, in a civilian capacity but we were still a warfighter and uh let, let me ask you so as we as we're approaching a wrap-up on this um larry and and um is there a takeaway or something you would like to leave the folks with a final thought or thoughts? Um, you know, just, uh, man, I, I, my heart goes out to everyone in these, uh, trying times right now. Um, I know it's difficult for everyone, but some more than others. Um, I am, I'm hurting. Like I think, most people are, if not all globally, but especially in our country. Um, and there's just this, uh, there's this need for us to start loving each other again. You know, um, mm. pol politics aside, man, um, at the end of the day, we're human beings to be more finite than that. You know, uh, in our country, we're Americans and, um, we can do better, you know, and, uh, I'm glad to have been a part of trying to help instead of hurt, you know? Um, and I think there's way more of like-minded individuals out there than is being let on, you know, or, or what's being discussed or what's being identified. Um, there's way more 
that care than what certain sources say don't care, if that makes any sense. But I think um, we just owe it to our survival, man, to to focus on things uh, as a collective and uh, just try to be better individuals. And I think the easiest way to start doing that is we need to get our house, our houses in order before we can try to help other houses. You know what I mean? So I think it's an introspective look. That's another grandpa thing. He's like, <laughs> you got to have your house in order before you can start helping everybody else, you know? And it, and it kind of mm. makes sense. Um, it's not really cliche, man. Like if, if, if your household is jacked up and unorganized, how can you be organized to, to help something and be a part of something bigger? So I think right. we need to take steps, you know, fix, fix us first and we shouldn't worry about, you know, um, distractions and get our stuff in order and then tackle the bigger things. You know, it's, it's like putting a bandaid on a gunshot wound. You got to do more things. You got to do other things first. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So first thing is I think we, we, we need to have conversations. And more importantly, during those conversations, there needs to be listening. You know, again, this goes back to when I started with DynCorp. I had to listen to what the Iraqis told me they needed instead of telling them what I thought they needed. Mm. So this 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 little formula of mine I've taken, we got to listen to each other. We got to listen to those who are hurting. We got to listen to ways to make things a lot better. So, again, you know, that's why I, uh, like I mentioned to you before offline, I think I'm going to, try to make something happen someday, man, and, and throw my hat in the ring in the politics and uh, see if I can't contribute to a better, to a better life, to a better world. You know, you mentioned that uh, uh, earlier as a sidebar before we started this. And, uh, you know, I, I think that'd be a great thing. Um, you talk about, uh, well, dare I say it, you talk, like you said, you're talking about maybe getting into politics and in and, and your neck of the woods, uh, here in the States. And I think that'd be a great thing. We need, we need more people that have a level head that see things the way they really are and just, you know, say it. Um, but it's interesting, uh, you know, what you were talking about there for the takeaway. I, we used to say probably still do, man, we're all in this together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, let's find a way to make it work. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, brother, I want to say thank you very much for being a guest on this show. Man, thanks uh, taking, for me. taking the oh absolutely i mean the time you took out of your day other side of the planet um uh, that that's just awesome and uh you know if, if you can stick around for a moment when we're done here sure. um so again i want to thank uh, my guest larry wilson for taking his valuable time to talk with me today about his experiences as a private security contractor uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode of oconus the contractor's life i hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Stay frosty, folks, and stay safe. Remember to be careful what you wish for. And until next time, keep it real.